This is StoryBeat, storytellers on storytelling. An exploration into how master storytellers and artists develop and build brilliant stories and works of art that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators of all kinds find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuton. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University in the heart of downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, we've got an incredible show today. My guest, movie and TV producer Chris Moore, was born and raised in Easton, Maryland. He attended Harvard University, where he studied American history. Subsequently, he worked as a production assistant at USA Network for two summers and found an opportunity to work as an intern for USA Network's comedy TV series, Up All Night. When Chris graduated from Harvard, he moved to Los Angeles with friends and began working in the mailroom at a talent agency. He eventually got promoted to literary agent and sold several scripts. Some became films, The Stoned Age, PCU, Airheads, Last Action Hero, and My Girl. When Chris's agency was acquired by ICM, he left to produce movies. With friends, he raised money to produce the film Glory Days. He knew Matt Damon in passing from his days at Harvard, and he approached Damon to star in that film. Damon turned down the opportunity in favor of paid work, but introduced Chris to his friend, Ben Affleck, who ultimately starred in Glory Days. Afterward, Damon and Affleck wrote the Oscar-winning screenplay for what would become Goodwill Hunting, and they involved Chris as a co-producer in its production. Chris became involved as a producer for the 1999 film American Pie, which was a breakout hit. He later also produced its sequels. In 2002, Chris co-founded the multimedia company Live Planet with Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and screenwriter-producer Sean Bailey. He became CEO of Live Planet, and the company produced the TV series Project Greenlight, as well as several films. In 2016, he produced Manchester by the Sea through his production company, The Media Farm, in which he was nominated for an Academy Award. Chris is married to Jenno Topping, who is also a noted film producer. They have a daughter named Maddie. And I got to know Chris a tiny bit a few years ago when he was here in Pittsburgh producing the TV series The Chair that aired on Stars. So for me, it's, a, it's truly a big thrill and a great honor to have the whirlwind force of nature, better known as Chris Moore, as my guest on Story Beat today. Chris, welcome to the show. Steve, thank you so much. I gotta bring you around with me wherever I go. <laughs> I'll be your That's I'll a be great your, introduction. I'll be your 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 standby PR guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so where did this love of movies come from? Were you always in love as a kid? Yeah. I uh you know, I grew up East End, Maryland is a somewhat small town and one of the only things to do is just go to the movies, mm-hmm. unlike today. And uh, <laughs> so I went to a lot of movies. Um, I am just at that age where I, I was 11, 12 years old when Star Wars came out. Right. I went to see that 10, 12 times in a the theater. Um, I, I think that I grew up in the golden age of, of sort of movies. And uh, I also uh, really enjoyed watching tv i think for me it was almost a psychological escape from my little town and my sob story of divorced parents right. blah 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 and uh and so i really enjoyed them I, I i liked them a lot i'll admit i never really thought i'd work in the business until much later right but i always liked uh movies and you, television. you could project yourself into those things couldn't you yeah I mean, I, I'm a Han Solo guy more than Luke Skywalker, but I, <laughs> I, I definitely felt like that was a better life than what I was doing in Eastern Maryland. All right. So, so obviously you, you were not a theater kid. You didn't grow up doing theater or film as a kid, right? I, I did not, although I had a summer job at a dinner theater uh, near where I grew up. And I will say that I, I loved watching these guys put on the play. They were doing uh, Joseph and the Technicolor. Dreamcoat. The the summer I worked, and uh, I I will say those are the early experiences. You realize, man, if I could do this for a living, this would be really fun. So so it was a theater experience that sort of triggered that thought for you. 
It definitely was that there, there's a job here and it's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was probably 14, 15 when I did that job. There's a friend of my family's that owned the, the dinner theater. Right. <laughs> and uh, it, it was just lively and exciting. And it's sort of like sports. You get all geared up for something, you work on it. But then at a certain point, the performance is over. Mm-hmm. The game's over. Right. And you get to move on, whereas I'm sure my gut is if you're working at, you know, IBM or or Citibank, it's just the same job every day for a long time. That's that's absolutely true. Well, I, I, we'll get into your days as a producer in a bit, but I can okay. imagine that, um, that you know, you're, you're correct. It's What you do is not a, a dull, it's same old, same old, every day's a new day for you, correct? Yeah, like this morning, woke up and I'm doing a podcast with Steve Coogan. <laughs> well, 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 now you've reached the pinnacle of show business. I know. I don't know where to go from here. <laughs> it's all downhill from here. <laughs> all right, so you eventually go off to <clears throat> Harvard to study yeah. American history. How do you get from American history into show business? Well, what I would say is my Harvard experience wasn't so good. You know, currently <laughs> I'm, I'm teaching a, a sort of uh, business class at NYU, and I, I look at these college kids today and I think, God, you know, if, if you had more perspective when you're 18 or 19, mm-hmm. you could use college so much better than, <laughs> than you do now, but you know, I, I I really just wanted to get into Harvard to sound really shallow, and uh, <laughs> and so once I got there, I'll admit that I wasn't quite sure, and I think history really became more a default position than I was interested in history. Well, have you used um, that? And have what you... happened, you know, similar to that dinner theater experience was, and you know, for baseball fans, they might remember this the. The Red Sox finally made it back to the World Series in 1986. Yeah. It happened to be my sophomore year in college. And a friend of my family's, uh, clearly my family friends have been helpful to me throughout my career, uh, was the local NBC producer for the World Series. Oh, yeah. So when the games came to Boston, they had sort of a local staff that would fill in and do stuff, and then the games they were playing the Mets, so the games would go back to New York, and they had a different, uh, you know, group. And so she asked me, you know, could I miss class for a couple of days and be a PA and and sort of help out? And I was like, yes, I can. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what the cursing rules are for your podcast, Steve, so you, I'm going to try is, not to curse. This but, is uh, an, this has an adult rating, Chris, and you can curse if you wish. <laughs> I was very excited, and I worked for sort of five days a whole week uh, for NBC and, and for Betsy, and I ended up, and, you know, this is a podcast that so you can't see me, but I'm about 6'4". You're a big guy. And I ended up in this weird position where the, the driver for the president and vice president of NBC Sports, yeah. who literally just retired from that job like four years ago. Right. So that's... You could see how long they had that job. His name was Ken Shanzer. He was a really nice man. You know, these guys, I realize, once they've made the deal to air, you know, the World Series, they don't have much to do. They get to go up and just shake hands and talk to sponsors. So they had a lot of free time. And the car that they had rented for them to get taken care of for the three days they were up there was too big for their normal PA to drive. (laughs) So... I was literally just standing in the office on the first day, being my tall self, and also with the locals, theoretically, although I was a college kid, I'm not a Boston local, and the woman, you know, the head woman said, uh, you know, this is not my friend, this is from, you know, New York, NBC, said, you, you look tall enough, can you drive a car, a Lincoln Town car? I was like, yeah, and she's like, (laughs) all right, well, you're going to drive these people around, and they had their wives with them. And they liked to travel together, and I took them around for three days and learned about deal-making and learned about the business a little bit, and they were very sweet. And, uh, and I ended up taking them some places I don't think they expected to go, like the dog track yeah. and uh, some, dog some track. other things. And we had a lot of fun. And then at night, when the games were on, I would be a PA running basically from the booth to the truck and back and forth delivering stuff and stats. You know, this is all before there was the internet. So there was a lot of much more manual labor. But anyway, again, like the dinner theater when I was younger, 
I just fell in love with this sort of production. And I really thought my my life was going to be in television sports. Mm-hmm. I, I had a great time. They liked me a lot. They offered me and, and sort of hooked me up with a, the group of people that do local sort of New England-based uh, sports for NBC, which was a local company that was non-union because I was not in the union. Right. So I did a throughout the rest of my college career, that was my sophomore year, I did, you know, Boston Celtics games and Patriots games and a lot of the Big East at the time, Big East basketball was big and it was BC and um, UConn and those guys were all in our, our region. And so I graduated to where I was doing on-air graphics and, and you know, other stuff for games. And, and it was a lot of fun. And I you know, I'm sure my grade point average suffered, but I had a blast and thought that's what I was going to go so, to. So explain to me, I, I think this is instructive for the listeners, how you were picking up on deal-making while doing that. You said you learned how to do deals and so on. What, what well, were... so my, I said to them, because I had never driven a president or whatever of, of anything right. before, and I said, what would you guys like to do? Don't you have work you need to do? Do you have meetings? And they sort of explained that, no, the deals get made beforehand. Then they explained to me the concept of rights, that Major League Baseball actually owns the World Series, and so that every year they or I think it's like every two or three years, they have to renegotiate mm-hmm. who gets to air the World Series. And, you know, at the time, there was no Fox, and, and it was just ABC, CBS, and NBC. And and uh, NBC was a big baseball partner. They're not anymore. Right. They, they pretty much do the Olympics and stuff. But um, it, was a, it, it was sort of that kind of experience. And then a couple times I had to drive them to sponsor events. And they clearly did a lot of the sponsor relationships and were explaining to me sort of exclusive sponsors and the amount of money people pay to be, you know, like right now if you're watching the – the the uh, league championships, you'll see Geico's name all over everything. Right. So they would explain to me why Geico was there, but then they also had other things and how that worked. And it was really interesting to me. I, I was fascinated by, you know, sort of there's some real numbers, like how many people watch the World Series mm-hmm. matters, mm-hmm. but a lot of it was attitude and and sort of, you know, a brand deciding they wanted to be part of baseball rather than anything NBC was selling, you know? And that was interesting to me that that the sort of media business, and again, it's because I'm not really a a super numbers sort of guy. I like, you know, more people doing things for emotional reasons than than just purely practical reasons that – you know, it was fascinating to me, those those kind of things. So and, you, uh, you know, a couple times, I can't remember, we were stopping somewhere. I think it was a Dunkin' Donuts, and they were like, no, we can't go in the Dunkin' Donuts. And I said, why? <laughs> and they said, I said, you know, it's a Boston, you know, at that time, Dunkin' Donuts was just a, basically a New England, even, you know, Massachusetts coffee place. Right. And so I thought I was taking them to a, you know, a local spot. And they were like, well, we have a deal with a different, I think it was 7-Eleven or some other place. And we really, you know, if somebody happened to take a picture or see us or whatever, you know, we might, we might be in trouble. Yeah. And, uh, and I had never thought of that concept before. Hmm. Like, you know, that there's, there's relationships. Now, again, this was all before cell phones, so it wasn't like somebody was going to take a picture. And the truth of the matter is nobody would really know by face who they who are Ken right. and, his, and his wife were. But... They were very conscious of the whole thing. So it was just a sort of way to learn about a lot of that stuff. And as we, as I did more and more of these sporting events throughout the next couple of years, there was a lot of stuff we had to do because of sponsors and a lot of stuff we had to do because of, you know, and so I started, you know, really not, I wasn't a participant in these meetings, basically just standing next to people who were talking about all these different obligations. But you were and, uh, you were learning everything and it was by sort of standing fascinating there. Fascinating to see what was important to people. But you were you were you were sucking all this information up just by standing there, right? Correct. And and um, so you didn't know anything about business or deal making or anything before you got this this one job. Never occurred to me. That's amazing. And and so you didn't go to school for anything that you currently do. You just learned it by doing it, right? Yeah, I hate to say that on 
you know, a, a podcast that, that may be listened to uh, by people. Oh, I, I kind of wish good. I had. There was stuff I had to catch up on when I, when I got here. But so, so. I am sort of a believer that entertainment in general is something that, you do got to get out and sort of experience Absolutely. and really get good at it. Absolutely. All right, so let's talk about how you then get into the business, really into the business. You finally go out to L.A., and you start to work in a mailroom in an agency, which is a very common path for a lot of people to get into the business. What did you learn from being in an agency mailroom, which is so common? Well, it's funny. that The, the thing that... Uh, was was really interesting about the, the that time you know if anybody remembers the old Saturday Night Live skit about well I'm just making copies you yes know, it's, there was no digital as I said there was no digital files or anything so we were pretty much just making copies <laughs> and you know getting packages to people and what became really clear was that it's a business completely built on information that the person who knows somebody the person who can reach somebody the person who knows that, you know, a movie's about to get made or a television show's about to get put on, that, that's currency. That, that's valuable stuff. Right. And how you use that information, you know, is, is a way that you move ahead. And so, you know, it was a smaller agency, so I got to know, you know, the principals and, and the senior people as well as the younger people. And we really, it, it was sort of a team effort to try to figure out you know, how, how to, what was good, what wasn't, what we could sell, you know, what we couldn't, and because it was smaller but pretty well connected, you know, they were trying to get bigger and, and you know, that kind of stuff. But the main thing I learned was the flow of information, mm-hmm. and I also read, I probably had to read 20 scripts a week wow. to, you know, sort of give response and give a point of view. and. I honestly believe, and this is another hard point for people who might be in school for it, is that I my taste started to bear out that a number of the scripts I had recommended or I had read were selling. And so the, the senior agents were noticing that, hmm. and they were saying, well, maybe this kid, you know, is a suburban kid from wherever. Maybe he's, you know, got a sense of the world or, or whatever. But it it taught me that, Things I like to read or, or when I'm reading it and I like it seem to translate well, which is sort of an innate, you know, taste is not something I think you can really teach. Right. It's something you, you like or you don't like. And I am a suburban kid from Maryland who likes Star Wars and, you know, Die Hard is one of my favorite movies. Yep. So I was very fortunate that my personal taste was somewhat commercial mm-hmm. so that they picked it up in the agency, and as a producer, I've been very lucky that way. And so I, I think that it was reading all of those scripts and having to defend my position to my bosses about why I thought they were good or not was a great training in what I still have to do today is read scripts and decide which ones I want to produce. Sure. You know? You, you have what I, what I consider to be, if you look at your the, the length and breadth of your career, as a producer, you have what I call meat and potatoes taste. You like right in the, right in the middle of what the public likes. You're not going well, to the outside hope. edges. Um, it's worked for me so far. Yeah. But, you know, I'm getting older now, so I'm worried it's more like old meat and potatoes. <laughs> um, but, uh, Just as long as it's not yeah, left I'm over. pretty straightforward. <laughs> I also like, if, if you look at it, there's a lot of sort of male friendship kind of things or you know, Goodwill Hunting and American Pie. Mm-hmm. Even Manchester is two brothers. Yeah. You know, one of them's dead. Yeah. And, um, you know, for me, it's really turned out to be about characters in situations that, you know, are interesting to watch. And, you know, I don't do a ton of spoof stuff. I have done some horror movies, but I'm not, that's not a natural thing for me. Right. Um, but it's really about characters and something. And, and I always joke, sometimes, what I always think about, I have this rule where any script I'm considering, I read at least twice, because the first time everything's new, once you know everything that's going to happen, does it still stand up as something you like? And then the third thing I have is, what would my buddies from Easton say? You know, because <laughs> they're my worst critics, is 
I made a movie once uh, I produced that, that Ben Affleck starred in called Reindeer Games. Right. And uh, it was out, and a couple of my friends went to see it, and a couple of weeks later I got a, me- a letter in the mail that said, we want our money back. <laughs> you owe us our money back. <laughs> and I said, I didn't direct it. I didn't write it. I just you know, made the movie. He's like, I don't care. We went to see it because of you. And we didn't like it. <laughs> that, that was, correct me if I'm wrong, that was John Frankenheimer, right? It was. It was. That's like one of the greatest directors who's ever been in the movies. Yeah, he was awesome, and it wasn't John's fault either. Um, <laughs> it just it had a couple holes in it that became really obvious when we were making the movie. It's a sort of thriller, um, and it just it didn't quite pan out. Well, but uh, but that's the kind of stuff that I love, and I still am pretty good friends with some of these guys. And you know, I think it's important to have people that will call you on your shit because Hollywood. <laughs> If you get to a certain level of success, everybody becomes, you know, mysteriously thinks you're a genius. Uh-huh. It's sort of like the emperor's new clothes. Uh-huh. You know? So ha- having somebody say, I owe them their money back. Sometimes I disagree. I had a, uh, another buddy years later wanted his money back for the Adjustment Bureau. Right. And I said, no, that's a good movie. You're wrong. That is a good, that, that is a good movie. That's a great movie. <laughs> so, I, it, you know, taste is personal. It it certainly is, and you know, I I think that what you have proven over time is that your taste is what again what the public wants. And when you have that, you're you're not going to hit it out of the ballpark every time, are you? Spielberg doesn't hit it out of the ballpark every time. Um, right. George Lucas doesn't hit it out of the ballpark every time. So so you know who does? Nobody. And um, if if you're going to be a producer, my assumption is you have to be smart enough to be to have enough in the pipeline not to worry about whether one thing hits or not or can you get can you get punished by having one flop i don't as a producer i don't think you can i i I think there's that and and i even think as a piece of talent you know i would consider writers directors actors um you know I think financiers, people whose whole career is based on access to money, can be destroyed by one flop because mm-hmm. if they lose all their money, it's, it's A, they don't have any more money themselves, but right. B, people are less likely to you know, sign up for them again because they lost their money. I think with producers, most people realize, to some extent, we did our job if the movie got made, right? So like, if you look at something like Reindeer Games, which most people consider wasn't 100% good or at the end, you know, we had Ben Affleck, Gary Sinise, Charlize Theron, John Frankenheimer. We had plenty of money to make the movie. It, the producing of that was good. We got a great, you know, group together to go make the movie. Mm-hmm. It just didn't work out, you know. And so the producer takes a little less hit. I think where you really get yourself in trouble is if your ego gets too big, like particularly for a producer, you don't want, you know, people to think, you know, this is their movie, the talent, you know, a lot of these talented folks, and I know you're a writer yourself, Steve, mm-hmm. but I, you know, they need a certain amount of ego to keep moving forward. It's hard to look at a blank screen or get in front of a camera, and so Very. I tend to try to stay behind the scenes and not take too much credit going forward and not... It's not that it kills you. What can kill you is if you become an asshole. People are just like, I just don't have time for this anymore because producers, we don't really do something that is uniquely great you know like it's it you can be really good at it but it's not super necessary like you know i and this is unfair to say because he's clearly you said in introduction is obviously a friend of mine but you know i think matt damon's a really good actor so you might put up with a lot of shit from matt because he's really good just like you would from you know a great baseball pitcher or a you know, a, an, an artist who was really good or, you know, a computer engineer who could code the shit out of stuff. Right, right? sure. Like, there is a level of talent where you can behave like a jackass. I don't think producers in that, that, that area where if you behave like a jackass for too long, they'll just stop calling you. Sure. Okay, so how did you, I mean, obviously you just started to do this. You didn't, you didn't train for it. How did you learn what you did? Just by literally doing it? Yeah, I mean, my, my story is so lucky that I, it, you know, it, I don't know if it's a great educational tool, but I, it's, you know, basically as an agent and working 
you know, for these guys, uh, my my Uber boss was a guy named Bill Block, who currently runs the new Miramax. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these guys were inclusive, and, and they they had no problem helping out the younger team, which I really appreciated. You know, the other guys I sort of came up with, two of them are big, well-known agents because they run Endeavor, which or Endeavor well, content or whatever it's yeah. called now, Ari Emanuel and Patrick Weitzel. Right. And all of us did it sort of like a team. And we learned a ton about deal-making, about sales, about talent. And, again, you have this side of a lot of the choice of a producer is really just picking which one you're going to work on, right? Like, um, because the weird thing about at least the film and TV business is there's a lot of specialized jobs. I, I like to compare it to general contracting, if anybody's done any you know, work or yes, whatever, sure. um, in construction, is... There's a dude who puts everybody together, but then basically sits around and just waits for stuff to get fucked up, right? <laughs> and if he picked all the right people, very little gets fucked up, right? So like Manchester by the Sea, there was a lot of work finding the person to pay for it, getting it set up. Matt Damon fell out at one point, and Casey became the lead, and it was all that stuff. But once we actually had it all in place, there was nothing for me to do. Right. Kenny Lonergan had a vision. He delivered his vision. He, he did a great job on that. And the point is that you have to learn, you know, what that role is. So I had some of the skills I learned as an agent. What happened on the first movie, which was called Glory Days, and Ben did end up starring in it, was all of the money was raised through 45 sort of individual people not putting in a ton of money, you know, ten to $25,000, because I just didn't want to be in a place where, you know, I was going to ruin somebody's kids college education if I right. lost all the money right and what happened is because I was also the person in charge of the money and I was the on the ground producer that first movie I did a lot of jobs and I had to you know carry a lot of stuff that that you realize all the stuff that falls through the cracks if you're not you know paying attention and you know we we had a great time and you know the movie didn't turn out very well but the the experience was a great learning experience. And so I, I did learn a lot from that movie. Um, and then, you know, uh, Good Will Hunting was next. And on Good Will Hunting, there was a bunch of people that got put on it because it was a bigger movie. And, you know, I kept doing my job. And so I had the, the, the luck of having those two experiences, mm -hmm. one where I was totally in charge and one where I was, you know, sort of the young kid just watching. And by combining those two experiences, I pretty much had one was a studio movie, you know, with Good Will Hunting, one was independent. I'd had pretty much all the experience, you know, as far as not, not all the experience, but what I mean is I, I had seen both sides of what a producer does and how it works. And, you know, I was able to then do it a few more times, uh, you know, and both on the studio level and the independent level. Right. So it was, you know, it was a good experience, those two together. So I think the managing of people I learned doing those two movies and sort of what happens on a set and how a movie really gets made, I learned on those two movies. But the putting it together and doing the real important work of, of picking the people, I had had some experience as an agent doing. And so that part I felt a little bit more comfortable with. So, so um would you say that um, uh, you, at the point that you finished uh, Goodwill Hunting, you had a sense that you knew what you were doing? Mm -hmm. You did. So that's what it was. It took two movies, one that was a little uh, less well, less attention on you and the next one that had a lot of attention on you. Well, what I'd say is you, you, you can't underestimate at that time how involved agents were in putting together their clients' movies. I see. So when I was selling these scripts that ultimately got made, you know, you mentioned some of them, and one of them you didn't mention, which I appreciate, but I'm going to go ahead and mention it, was a <laughs> massive public failure called The Last Action Hero. Oh, yeah, that and, giant. <laughs> and so that was my biggest sale as a young agent. It was right? sold for a lot of money. We attached all these people. They went right into production. It was Arnold Schwarzenegger, all this stuff. And the thing was, the movie turned out horrible. And for me, it was a very educational experience about how if nobody is really thinking about the movie, 
that the movie it, it can get made even with good names and good ingredients but it still can suck and that really in my opinion is why a producer is so valuable i'm in the minority in hollywood right now i mean amongst producers we joke that the producing job doesn't exist anymore why is that that we've been replaced by a bunch of specialists but the point back then was that was a very educational experience was that and then some of the smaller movies like the stoned age i did a lot more work on just because it was small and i didn't have a lot and you know i wanted it to go well for my clients right you know right um so i'd say i it, it's not like i was a uh, you know, an auto mechanic, and I went to be a doctor, and there's nothing, you know, that crosses over. Sure. There was a lot of the preparation and deal-making and, and budgeting and management that happened behind the scenes as an agent when your clients are, you know, getting their first movies made or directing their first movie or whatnot that gave me a real perspective on that part of it, you know, and... So the real surprise was just what happens on set. And as I said, there's a lot of people on a set who know what the hell they're doing. Right. So if you can be a little bit smart and sit back and you don't have to, you know, be angry all the time, you can watch <laughs> them and then you can start in your own mind, start realizing what works and what doesn't work. So I teach, I teach on a regular basis the following concept, that the screenwriter is essentially the architect who draws up a blueprint of what the building should look like. And then there comes a general contractor, that's usually the producer, and hires a lot of subcontractors to build the building. And then you, you hire a director and actors and cameramen and so on. Is that a good analogy? 100%. Okay. So I'm behind you 100% on that analogy. So the, the, in, in construction, we're going back to the construction analogy, in construction you have a blueprint, but frequently the actual built building is different than what's on the paper. And that's the yeah. same for a screenplay as well, isn't it? Yeah, and I think where producers or directors or some other people sometimes jump in is they might, to, to stick with the construction analogy, they might find the piece of land, mm -hmm. right? But they still got to go hire the architect to figure out, how, and they might even have an idea what they want to put on it, right? Right, right. I want to put a mall here. I want to put a development of houses here. I want to put a YMCA over here, whatever, right? And right. They go to the architect and say, okay, let's figure out how to do that in a way that works and cost-effective and whatever. But sometimes it's also the architect coming and seeing a piece of land and saying, holy shit, that would be an awesome museum, you know, right. or whatever. And I think that's, that's the stuff that happens at the beginning, that relationship and how that works and where it goes, that the timing of who gets involved when can all be a little bit loose. But it is ultimately the description you gave of who's doing what where mm -hmm. is exactly what you said. All right, the so writer takes over creatively, the producers hire other people, and you go from there. So wh why did you say earlier that you think producers are becoming less needed, that there are all these specialists? What, what, when you say that, what do you mean? Well, so the physical side of production has basically been taken over by line producers okay. or u unit production managers, people who come in and aren't very creative and are, are not not that they don't want to be creative they're just that's not what is what considered in their job description right and and then there's um uh then you have post-production supervisors who are people who are managing the post-production you know side of the whole thing uh and then you have um you know financiers who are are coming in and you know sort of using the fact that they're putting up the money to decide they want to be the producer mm -hmm. and again i believe that every project needs somebody who's just managing the project has no other agenda right and so a financier clearly has an agenda to get his money back or her money back to get more of that than whatever so sometimes they'll have really dumb conversations you know like you know, we, sh we should have, you know, more naked girls or whatever. <laughs> um, I, I think that that's the thing that is very, you know, sort of frustrating to me. And then on another level, and again, I, all these people are necessary, but on another level, you know, you have now managers and 
partners with talent. And again, I was one of those later in my career. You know, Matt, Ben, and I were partners for 15 years, right? So you come in as talent. Well, part of what you're doing is you want the movie to be good. And on a macro level, clearly Matt or Ben wants the movie to be good too. But there's still a part of your agenda that's about making it good for them, right? So there's a scene that they might be uncomfortable with playing or they're you know, they, they want to do something different. You might yourself believe, well, that's not the best thing for the movie, mm-hmm. but Ben's my partner, so let's go try to do that, right. right? Or luckily for me, I think Matt and Ben are very, very talented guys. So they never really put me in super awkward situations, but I've seen it with other projects that I've been on. And so what I'm trying to, what I mean is there's no, produ- nobody seems to value the manager of the individual project anymore. And so the other group that's come in and really doesn't want producers, I mean, they'll come right out and tell you to your face, we don't like working with producers, Really? are all the studios and the streaming services. They have a legion of executives who they put on their projects who work for them and are producing the movies really? or the television show. So it's this very weird thing now where... Everybody wants the agendas that are important to them to have a human on set and in the process who is representing them, right? Yes. So you you never have a pure conversation about what's best for the movie. It's what's best for Netflix, what's best for the star, what's best for the financier, you know? And so it, it becomes a very blurred thing. And when you're the person who's just trying to argue for the best of the project... You know, a lot of people don't want to be in that fight. Mm-hmm. You know, the director doesn't want to have anyone who has any creative checks and balance on them. Right. And the financier doesn't want anyone who has any financial checks and balances. And the distributor doesn't want anybody who has any marketing checks and balances. But the problem is that with social media today, everybody has all of that. Yeah. Right? And yeah. so a producer used to be the person in the middle and everybody likes producers because it was helpful. They could help with the talent, and they could help with the... Now, we, we unfortunately have produced ourselves out of a job. Wow. Because some people think we're too difficult. A lot of these companies think we're too expensive. Like, why, why am I paying that guy to just sit there and watch all these other people when ultimately I hired all of them, right? Well, yeah, um, but... You know, and so I find it, and I, you know, I, I actively fight against it as a member of the Producers Guild and in some of my other work, but I'm not sure it's a fight we can win. Well, like, I'm, I'm not sure that it hasn't gotten to the place because there's an insecurity that giving somebody else a management job on your own thing is dangerous, right? You, you could get in trouble, so... I think that's why most of the producers are going in-house places. They're becoming executives or they're working for somebody who has money. They're not out on their own. I am fortunate enough that through some of my success and, as you mentioned in my intro, the success of my wife, um, I'm staying independent and sort of make my decisions project by project. Mm -hmm. But it's very difficult, and that used to be an easy way to make a living because every year – somebody would call me up and just ask me to produce their project, right? Right. And now I still get the calls, but I would say it's less than 50% of the time can we actually make a deal because either some producer who's on the movie or the studio or the financier or the you know streaming service, they don't want me on the movie. Interesting. They, they, they don't want to pay me. And again, I don't ask for a lot. And, and they don't want another voice. Interesting. You know? I would think... And so it happens all the time where directors call up, or I've even had studio heads call up and be like, dude, will you just go make this movie for us? I'll be like, sure. And it... then, you know, six weeks later, it's, well, you know, we couldn't get it in there, or it wasn't going to fit in the budget, or will you do it for $8,000? And you're like, look, I'm not going to live in Atlanta for $8,000. So, <laughs> But I... I think that that's, the, that's why I say that idea of the general contractor. In fact, you see it in construction, not to be really boring and continue our, our analogy. Yes, but go ahead. But a lot <laughs> of the big architectural firms now have their own contractors. Right. Like there's a big one here in L.A. called Marmal Radziner. And, you know, I, I know both Ron and Leo, and 
when they helped us on one project on our house and they didn't have a contractor, so we interviewed contractors together. And by the time they came to do my current house, they had their own in-house team. Wow. And, again, uh, it, it, it creates that thing of, well, if everything's going through one guy, do I really trust it? Would I rather have an independent contractor, or am I getting a better deal because they're in control of everything? How, how, chaotic, and, how chaotic does that make production, or doesn't it? It makes decision-making a fucking disaster. Yeah, that's what I thought. It, and it, that's why... I think you see a number of projects that feel sort of in, in the middle, bland, you know, whatever, because you really shouldn't be making, you shouldn't tell any kind of story, you know, no matter what the medium is, even if you're just at the dinner table trying to tell your parents a story, it shouldn't be by committee. No, that, that, it, there should be an autocrat. It, it should, there should be a storyteller and you're all trying to help make that version of the story mm -hmm. as good as it can be. I'm from, I'm from the old school of thought where you want an autocrat. So the autocrat on the show should be the producer. The autocrat on the set should be the director. And those are the two autocrats. And the, and the directors should still be um, you know, playing over toward what the uh, producer's needs are. And the producer should be helping the director do what his or her needs are. So and I'd like to go back to that world with you, Steve. <laughs> well, let's go. <laughs> how, how do we get there? It, yeah, that's because that's interesting. Currently, none of the people that we would need to go make a project agree with you. That's fascinating. I, the I, directors are becoming producers. The uh, the producers are thinking they're directors. The uh, the financiers are thinking they should be both jobs. <laughs> it's wow. Just a, it, and and the problem is there's no rules, right? Right. So in construction, again, continuing the analogy, the there are skill sets, right? Like no general contractor, unless they literally came up through the carpentry union, is going to say, I should be the carpenter, not the carpenter. Right, right. right. And definitely not the plumber or the electrician. You've got to be licensed to do that, right? And right. So there's not this sort of constant you know, fight over the power of the creative. Whereas in, in our business, every day, everyone thinks they know better. And anyone who's invited to a screening will give notes. And the problem is once you go down the road of a specific vision, hopefully the director's vision, you got to stick with that vision because right. everything plays into that vision. Oh, it's, it doesn't work if there isn't a unified vision. It, right. That, it and so that's where, you know, as an older guy... You know, I look at it, and I'm always just like, uh, you know, this is crazy. Yeah. that That's uh, – I mean, I, I've been teaching back in Pittsburgh. You know, I was in L.A. for 35 years, but I've been teaching in Pittsburgh now in my ninth, my ninth turn around here. And that's different in the nine years since I've been gone from L.A. That yeah. That's not the way it was. It was still pretty traditional uh, 10 years ago. Well, so, it was also – you had some great – big producers. You had Scott Rudin and Joel, um, Jerry Bruckheimer. Mm -hmm. You had, you know, Spielberg's Amblin or DreamWorks. You had, you know, producers were driving a lot of what was going on. And quietly, and, and again, I have my own very strong personal feelings, is I think there's two major reasons. One was we were lazy bastards who loved giving over all of the sort of day-to-day -day management jobs to these specialists. Right, mm -hmm. so it was producers that invented the post-production supervisor job, and that that wasn't because you know we didn't know how to do it. It was because it's a shitload easier to sit in your office and do nothing while somebody else scheduled the ADR and the editing and supervised the delivery of these special effects. Right, right. right. And so you're sitting there going, "Well, no one's ever going to come to my job. Come after my job. I'm the best." But now, someone like Netflix looks at it and goes, "Well." I could pay Scott Rudin a million dollars, and this is not factual. I don't have any idea what Scott gets paid. Right. What I mean is that guy, in my opinion, is the best producer of my life that I've been in Hollywood. Okay. He, you know, one year, I think it was two or three years ago, he had three movies nominated for Best Picture in the same year. <laughs> yeah. Right? Right. I mean, he's awesome. He has a great sense of material, but he's expensive, and he doesn't do any of those practical things. So you see a lot of people now look at somebody like Scott, and they're like, I don't need the hassle. Right. So Scott 
Ross out there making himself, you know, relevant by getting good material, having talent still wants to work with Scott. And Scott has a great eye. He gets the rights to all these books. He does other stuff. But he's, he isn't, in my opinion, getting the respect. And I say this is also for somebody like myself, where people should be begging that dude to supervise their project. No kidding. Right? Yes. Like, he, you, all you want is to think, oh, my God, Scott Rudin's going to make sure this is good. You well, know? I, I think it's the same with you, Chris. People should be begging you. Well, I mean, like I said, it, that would be nice. But it, the problem is that now we've crossed some sort of, you know, I, as Malcolm Gladwell would say, some sort of tipping point yes. where the positive I bring is counterbalanced by this negatives of loss of control that now seem to be more powerful. I mean, you can see it happening right now if you're paying at all attention to what's happening in the Disney purchase of Fox. Disney has completely, basically come out to all the producers at Fox and said, we don't like working with producers. We're going to settle you out. you got to go find another place to be a producer. Yeah. That's a whole studio <laughs> of people yeah. that are going to be trying to find a place to be a producer. So what, what and that's you... arguably the biggest studio in the world, right? Yes. Just openly coming out and saying, you know, we, we don't need what you provide anymore. What do you, you think? Know? Do you have any concept or thought as to what the solution to this is? Is it just to go out and I, make I, your own I movies? I believe we're all going to end up becoming part of larger entities. I think that each place will have their group of producers. Occasionally, you know, you'll be able to raise money or do something. But until there's some sort of either licensing or, you know, official approval or, or thing that a producer has to do, it's just too, too much the wild, wild west mm-hmm. for, for anybody to naturally do it. And for a lot of the people who are in these jobs or whatever, they, they don't want, you know, the problem that producers did is we took too much credit for our success, mm-hmm. you know. And so on one hand, people don't want you because you're going to take credit. On the other hand, they don't want you because you're going to cost too much money. So you're like... You know, you, you you can't win on both sides. Do you, you know? think that? Do you think that um, the, the the giant spectaculars, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Warner Brothers and so on? Do you think that the comic book movies have been largely to blame for this, or or not? No, no, because I think there's somewhat a reaction to what's happening in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I think the point is Netflix sometimes will go out and they will put a producer on. Like I have a friend, Dylan Clark, who went out and he produced Bird Box. And he produced another movie for them because they know they're making so much stuff, right, that, that they need to do it. The difference is Netflix doesn't give you any back end. You don't have any opportunity to make more money. Right. You paid what you get paid. And you're, you know, to some extent, you're a functionary for Netflix, right? Yep. And, and it's a different experience. And so it's, as a producer, you, that's what I mean is Dylan doesn't officially work for Netflix, and it's partly because he's about to go do Batman for uh, Warner Brothers. So Dylan has a good life right now working on some of these bigger things. But I think what Dylan did for, uh, for Netflix for those couple movies is an example of what a producer will do. You'll, you'll make deals with places that you produce for, and that will limit some of what you can – do creatively because most of these places have, you know, business plans or models or they have the types of projects they like. But the thing about the, particularly the Marvel universe, is that's all one big producer, right? Yeah, Kevin exactly. Feig. Yep, one, and one guy. he has a great eye for keeping the story together. I mean, they, they made those things connectable over 22 movies. That's amazing. So that's pretty impressive. It's very impressive. And... I think it's going to be a genre that lives on and the big spectacle and the big money and, and those superheroes. I, I think they're getting a little thin on, you know, what to do now because, the, you know, they've played it all out. But that's a creative thing, not a business thing. So, so um, they, they did it because they understood serialization from comic books themselves and they understood it from serialization of animated TV shows, which I had a lot to do, you know, a certain amount to do with in the 90s and 2000s because I wrote a lot of those things. And yeah. 
And once they understood that it was ser- you could make serialization out of it, you could get way out in front. But they've done a brilliant job of tying all that together. And and so I think that that's changed the industry in a not necessarily a good way. It's made a lot of well, money. Well, it depends. I mean, I say this publicly all the time: is that the what's really sad for me about that stuff. I think you're right about serialization in a sense. And in my class, when I teach it, I say, "Look, I don't think the term film or television matters anymore. Yeah, I think we're all making stories, and we're going to come up with a different vocabulary." Because they're all serialized. Yeah. I mean, the goal of anything is to have sequels and to have more versions of it, right? Sure. So the, the point is, it's, so what happened is they proved that at the big budget level, the serialization could work. I would argue that what DC's done so far has proved that you can fuck it up, too. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> they haven't done a good job, so it's not, it's not a guarantee. No. Right? No. And and I think what it is is that if people like characters, if people like what what's out there, you know, I think the bigger thing is that the audience has decided that there's so much choice. This is the big problem for me, Steve, and, and this is the thing that I think is not talked about enough, is that we have been the creators of our own demise when I say we the Hollywood industry, which mm-hmm. I'm a member of. I'm certainly not a leader of. Right. And I, I'm not trying to speak for it, except that I am trying to speak for it as an <laughs> observational thing, sure. which is we make too much shit. And I don't mean <laughs> shit meaning good, you know, bad versus good. No, what too I mean much stuff. Literally, the volume is too high. Too Way too high. Way too high. And so Who the, the heck can watch all the TV shows? I think the superhero movies and the things that came from existing intellectual property are what's winning right now is because the audience is is lost. Yeah. Nobody is telling them, you know, from an honest place, not from a financial gain or a personal place. Nobody is telling them what's good and what's bad. So they have to make their decisions by something they're familiar with. Right, sure. So Robert Downey Jr. is Iron Man. I like that. I like that dude. I like the way he plays that part. The good guys usually win in those movies. Okay, I'll go see that. Right, right. right. And, and I think that's the saddest part for me is that movies in general, because the money is so big and because the marketing now is, is far less dependable, have given up being able to launch anything original. You know, my entire career is based on original movies. Sure. You know, Good Will Hunting is not based on anything. American Pie is not based on anything. You know, the, the Adjustment Bureau was a Philip K. Dick book, but, I mean, short story, but nobody knows what that is. Right. You know, Joyride was not based on anything. Like, the, the point is, they've just given that shit up as a whole. They've mm-hmm. just said, you can invent Breaking Bad on TV, but there is no way... Walter White could be in a movie. No. When, you know, even five years ago, but certainly ten years ago, he would have been in a movie. Sure. Oh, yeah. No, TV has taken over as the great storytelling place. The problem is, it's still the same problem when you have Netflix and others um, churning out so much property, there's no right. way anybody could watch any of it. And you don't know what to watch because there's so much. And then you hear, oh, I like this show and I like that show. And you just don't have time to watch it all. That's a exactly. big, that's a huge problem. Um, so as, as we've been going along, this has just been a very fascinating and revealing um, uh, explanation of what's going in it, on in Hollywood right now. Um, I, I, I'm curious. You're still receiving scripts and trying to put things together, yes? 100%. Okay. So what is but, it What is I'm, it that you I, seek? You know, How do you... I'm, I'm doing it from the point of view of, you know, uh, this is going to be harder. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a joke again, and I, I speak for some producers because we do talk about it within the... The, our guild, which is not a union, which I think is part of our problem also, is we have no sort of outside protection. But the, the you know, we joke that our, whether you agree or not with my very dire thing that the job itself doesn't even exist, what everybody would agree on is currently the state of the producer business is that you work twice as hard for half the money. Mm-hmm. And, that, you know, that's not the way you want your job to go. No, right? no, you certainly not. You want it to go to work half as much for double the money. Yeah, sure. Right? 
Sure. And so, so what I'd say is, I, I, as I said earlier, I'm so fortunate financially. I also made a personal decision that I wanted to spend time with my kids while they were young. My daughter, Maddie, who you mentioned, just went to college. I also have two sons. One is a sophomore in high school, and the other one is a, a seventh grader. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by not going on location as much, by not making as many things, I get to be around more, which was a, was a definite choice I made. Sure. But it seemed to coincide with the situation where it was also going to take a lot longer for stuff to get made, you know? So in a way, that was almost fortuitous, in a way. in the sense that life put it that way. But now as my daughter goes to college and my son gets his driver's license, I'm starting to feel far less useful. And so I, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm starting to look to do more stuff. And as I, that's probably been the last six months or so, some of these things I'm saying to you have come out of that mm-hmm. because the, it's just so, uh, it's just so, I, you know, and maybe I was arrogant to think this, but I was like, well, I'll get back into it. I'll tell people I'm getting back into it and I'll, it'll all just start happening. And when you get people just saying, look, Chris, we don't pay producers anymore, or, you know, Chris, we're just, it does, we don't, we love you to do it, but you got to do it for this. Or my favorite one was somebody called and said, well, we love you produce it, but you can't, uh, you know, you, you can't have any, you can't talk about it creatively. Oh, God. Well, that's not so who you, you are. You're a creative you, guy. You, well, but also in, in my personal opinion, the creative and the budgeting are connected. They're not, it, it's not a, it, 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 that, that's like, what he's really saying is we, we, we don't want you to be in post um, and we don't really, you know, so you come for summer prep, you get it set up, you sit on set, you supervise, and then you go home, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and for me, you know, that, that is sort of the, that's just, it's not really a big part of the job. Well, all right. do you feel like you're uh, making inroads? Do you feel like you're going to be back in production? I do. Right. I, I, I think I will be. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it, it's more one of those things where I'm, uh, I'm, I'm learning about, you know, how to do it and which way to go and trying to make some personal decisions mm-hmm. about, you know, how fast or how far away on location or whatever. I mean, when we... We're working together on the chair. You know, I'd been in Pittsburgh for seven months. Right. And, uh, you know, I had a great time, and I, I like Pittsburgh a lot, but my family wasn't there. Right, sure. And then I went right from there to Atlanta to do this other show called Survivor's Remorse that was on Stars as well. And, you know, that that is a life a producer leads now is a lot of travel, a lot of living other places, a lot of being away. And... So I, I still have to come to grips with that on a personal level. But as far as setting things up, I have a number of things that are being bought now and, and some scripts that are getting written and stuff. So it'll it'll take a little while, but it'll be, um, I think, you know, by next year, I'm certainly sure things will, will have gone into production or being produced at the time. I, I, and I'm certainly not uh, looking to create any issue for you, but do you have a particular thing that you look for? Do you actively seek comedies versus dramas, or do you just look for everything? Well, what, what I'd say is it's not actually genre-specific, because as I said, I, I'm sort of more character and mm-hmm. story-based. Mm-hmm. So... If it's funny, great. If it's romantic, great. I personally think right now we haven't put out any romances recently that sort of crossed over. I try to be a little bit ahead of the curve. You know, we, we got a lot of credit for uh, American Pie because we brought back that sort of R-rated sex comedy stuff. Right. Um, but the, the bigger point, I, I think, is that I just want to read about some characters I like, like Will Hunting or... Uh, you know, Jim and his friends in American Pie, or even, you know, Casey's character and the, you know, the the people in... Um, Manchester by the Sea. You know, Manchester by the Sea were characters I loved, and it was a tragedy. I wouldn't say I'm dying to make another movie where we have three kid body bags, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, any one of those things, you know, it's more outlandish stuff. I also joke that, you know, I'm not a guy who's looking to make the next, you know, Spider-Man. That, that is almost a whole other world of producing when you're making 
something that every shot has CGI in it. Sure. And, you know, it's, it, it's a different thing. Um, but I, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm much more open for business now. I seem to be averaging three or four scripts a week, which is great. Um, you know, I'm pretty hard on scripts. Uh, so, you know, anybody who's listening is thinking about sending me something, that's, that's fine. You're welcome to. I am one of the places, I guess, still in Hollywood that accepts unsolicited material, mm-hmm. but I do, you know, send a release. Um, and, and so for me, it, it's this larger question of is the, are these people I like who I'd like to hang around with? And then I, I think you have to have a real honest feeling about yourself that, you know, about whether something really needs to be on a big screen or not. I mean, I think that's something we didn't really talk about was that the, the battle for the, you know, for what people are doing is very different now because, you know, you can watch a story or experience a story in a million different ways. And, and, and people have huge screens the in their homes. It isn't based on the story. It's based on convenience. Sure. It's based on, you know, what your life is like at that point. It's based on, you know, you got little kids, so you're watching Game of Thrones on your... Uh, on your phone. You know, on your phone or your, your iPad, right. rocking in the chair next to the crib, right? Right. And... You know, I think, I personally believe these arguments about, you know, that really should just come down. I tend to be a believer, and this may be, you know, what makes me a little bit, I don't know, some people in Hollywood a little bit angry when I speak publicly, is I I tend uh, to believe that you still have to factor the audience into the conversation Mm -hmm. and, and that it's not an art form that is 100% personal. There are films like that, and there are stories like that, and there is a place for that, and I, I'm all for it. I think Kenny Lonergan does that every time he writes something. Mm-hmm. Is It's coming from Kenny, you know? Um, and for some people, they have to look at it that way because if they open their mind up too much, they lose their vision, you know? Um, but I think at a certain level, you need to think about the audience. And so when I hear these fights about you know, does a movie have to be in a theater or what's really a movie or what's a, you know, an episodic or whatever. I think that's people getting a little bit too, you know, precious with what's going on. Mm-hmm. There is definite talent and there is genius and there is skill and, and expertise in this business 100%. But the question of how you watch it is a little bit, in my opinion, beyond the reach of what a filmmaker should be thinking about you know a, a chef will still let their food be taken to go right right, right. and uh and and a you know a, an, an artist will usually allow their painting to have prints made of it yes you know and some of the great artists have allowed their paintings that are considered masterpieces to become postcards yes right sure now, surely when they were sitting there painting it, they didn't think, oh, this would be a great postcard, <laughs> right? No. But the, to me, I think it would, it would behoove our industry as a whole to look at what the humans are doing and, and to really, you know, sort of say, we should be honest with them. You know, where, where we've really let the audience down is that we're not helping them figure it out. It used to be a really clear story. If it's in the theater, it means we, the industry, think it's Isn't good. I- Right. Yes. If it's going straight to video, then we think it's okay, and we're trying to get our money back. Right. Right. And if it doesn't get released at all, it's horrible. You know. And as a viewer, you can figure it out. Then it became windows where, okay, it might be a great movie that got released in theaters, but you yourself and the audience—I mean, you probably remember these terms. Like, ah, that's a, you know, that's a DVD. I'm not going yeah. to the theater. Right. That was a choice you made, personally, with feeling like you've been given some level of information from the industry about that project. Right. Right? Right. Now, who the hell knows? Right? Netflix is putting out movies not in theaters. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Um, so it, it, it's just a, it, the audience is lost, right? And so they're looking at what's more convenient, what's more cost-effective. You know, so when, when Netflix puts out numbers, that say 80 million people watch this, right? Yep. And you think to yourself, well, 
it was free, right? Yes. If they put that movie in the theater and it cost 50 bucks when you include parking and time and energy and, and soda and whatever else, I'm not sure 80 million people would have gone to see. I agree. You know what I mean? I like, agree. And and the point is no one's really talking about that. You're starting to see it from the actual theater chains, which I think is funny because they're much closer to the customer. Sure. Right? Oh, yeah. They're saying things like, well, maybe Black Panther should cost more than Manchester by the Sea, right, to it, go see. It's a, little bit like, we, it's a little bit like Broadway. You get a, l- a higher price on certain shows. And, and to me, Broadway must have at some point figured out what that that value proposition for the sure. person who likes coming to theater sure. is. Sure, right? it's, it's what it's and what so the audience in Broadway had to debate. It's right? what does that? What will the market bear? And they'll go right. for that. And so you know, there's there's sort of rules of thumb, but they're not legal. It's not like the police are going to show up if you decide to charge more. Right. right? Sure. Of course. And so for me. That, and, and, you know, that's certainly the way rock concerts have been for years or stand-up comedians, you know. Of course. And so that's why I think once the entertainment, you know, being sort of audiovisual professional storytelling becomes more sort of responsive and, and integrated with the audience, um, I think a lot of these, these niches, or at least I'm really hoping so, will come back. Right. Mm-hmm. Like today, people say, well, could you make Good Will Hunting today? I said, I doubt it. Maybe I could get it made as like three or four episodes on, Cable. you know, a, a television channel for, you know, a, a total four or five million dollars. Mm-hmm. Whereas we spent twenty five million dollars on the movie. Right. Right. And American Pie is probably, a, you know, Comedy Central series about losing your virginity. Right. You know, I don't know. You saw Netflix had, I thought, a really interesting show. I think it's called The End of the Fucking World or something. These two British kids <laughs> who who were bombing around sort of pseudo-serial killers. Right. But, uh, but like, American Pie would have been something like that, you know. Um, but I, I said, so what? We still would have made it, you know. Right. We made four American Pies, right? Yeah, right. So anyway, I, unfortunately, I'm going to have to jump. Yeah. Uh, but it's really fascinating to talk about this stuff for me. Well, well, at some point, if you wish, we'll we'll have you back for a second go. Sure. That'd be great. I'm, I'm available. I mean that wholeheartedly. And I, I didn't get a chance to ask you the last two questions, but that's okay. We'll do it some other day. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for coming on, Chris. This has just been a great, a really great revealing and just a fascinating conversation, and I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. And so we've come to the end of today's Story Beat. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a comment, rating, or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great episodes to you. This podcast would not have been possible without the generous support of the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.